I also think that having this many people on a plane up close in this very gossipy industry that we're in will know pretty quickly whether he has not just his fastball, but whether he still has that X factor at all. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, January 30th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I talk about Donald Trump's nascent and kind of sleepy 2024 campaign. Big social media platforms are letting him post again, and the political press is starting to travel with him on his campaign plane. But has the former president lost his fastball? We'll hear about all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Monday, everybody. It's Media Monday, which means I'm joined by John Kelly, as always. How are you, man? I'm good, man. And I, I hope you're the same. We, we have to admit from the very jump here that we didn't wake up at 2 in the morning on Monday to take the show. We're, we're talking before... <laughs> The big Joey Burrow at Burrowhead Stadium game this Sunday. Your Cincinnati Bengals go Bengals. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, you know, here at Puck, we tell you what's really going on in the power centers of the country. And what's really going on is sometimes Media Monday (laughs) isn't taped on Monday. Um, So uh, we are going to be making some Cincinnati chili for the game. And I got some... Some new Bengals merch uh, and a little vintage Bengals pennant to put on the door. It's a big Sunday, uh, but it's also a big Monday. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a big Monday, but it's it's scary for you. The line opened, I think, with Cincy getting a point and a half, and now you guys are. Last I checked, you guys were three points. This favorites, is all Mahomes. So, um, you know, I know. Will here, won't he? Like they brought him on the field to like practice the other day, like right before the weekend, and his ankle looked fine, and so the odds change. I mean, like I, this is actually the first time I'm saying this out loud. I would rather have Joe Burrow in a playoff game than Patrick Mahomes. There, I said it. Uh, but this will sound really funny to people listening on Monday if the final score is like 40 to 7 or something. <laughs> well, I'll offer one final observation before we get into the, the, the real heart of our analysis here, which is that <laughs> when I was searching for the lines to this game, it, it's just interesting to me how every like venerable sports news organization has just totally capitulated to 
basically being a shingle for some sort of, you know, sports book at this point. And um, I know that Disney and ESPN have kind of doth protested too much about being a family business. But what are these guys waiting for? Um, if you're if you're not in the sports gambling business, you're not in business. It's exactly right. I mean, I'm not opposed to sports gambling. Like, I, I don't have a jihad against it. I have friends who do a ton of it. But I watch SportsCenter sometimes. An admitted old media habit at this point. But, you know, they do like entire segments on odds and gambling. And then on, on top of that, fantasy football, it's just like part of watching sports at this point. Anyway, uh, I want to ask you about something else going on in the world, much more important, obviously, than Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow. And that is that Facebook late last week announced that they're allowing Trump back on Facebook and Instagram, I should say Meta, their parent company, rebranded parent company, after a two-year ban following January 6th when he, you know, was banned for basically inciting violence and spreading more election lies. Nick Clegg, who is the former <laughs> deputy yeah. prime minister of the UK <laughs> uh, and is now president for global affairs at Meta, came on and he said, uh, one, this was a two-year ban and the time has simply passed. Uh, he said, the threat of violence has been drastically reduced and Trump will be allowed back on. He's got between Facebook and Instagram a combined 60 million followers. Obviously, not all those are U.S. registered voters, but it's a lot of people to have a megaphone for. Importantly, that's a big fundraising outlet for him. This is coming in time for the 2024 campaign. I'm interested in, John, a couple things. One, Trump also hasn't dabbled on Twitter, which is obviously his favorite platform. Uh, Elon Musk let him back on. He hasn't tweeted since then. And then Facebook and Instagram are obviously important for him and his campaign. He hasn't been on them either. He has been sticking to true social, <laughs> which has gone through a lot of executive leadership changes, losing money. They owe money to vendors. And I'm just curious what you think, one, you know, of Facebook letting him back on, but two, like why he isn't diving back headfirst into using these big platforms. Because obviously you can see inside this guy's head better than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I'm so glad that we we shared a laugh over Nick Clegg, who I've never met before in person, but it's just a stunning observation about our life and times that somebody who was nearly the prime minister of a G8 country is now in a second tier C-suite job at, at Facebook or Meta. You know, like that's really how the world works. It's so funny, man. Like, it's like, I can see... David Pluff, Jim Messina, like Jeff Morrell, like these people who are like staffers and strategists for candidates and presidents, like taking these corporate jobs. It's weird. Like you wouldn't even think of like other than Devin Nunes taking the job at True Social, which I feel like is, uh, you know, below junior varsity. Um, you don't it doesn't feel like a lot of high level elected officials actually take these sort of like corporate jobs. They usually go to like some sort of like lobbying firm on Wall Street or maybe they do. And by extension then do like work for oil and gas or big tech or whatever but it's just it's pretty stunning every time i see him on tv because i remember that election he almost became the prime minister yeah yeah exactly it was a power sharing situation usually it's the politician's flack who ends up being the, the right. corporate flack it's not the politician who ends up being the corporate flack and the, the fact that he's got to contort himself into all these uh, different finagled uh defenses anyway so th that just sort of is what it is and it, it occasionally boggles my mind but I, I was reminded this week of a conversation I had with someone at a dinner like six years ago. A Adam Mosseri was in town. He's the guy who runs Instagram. We talked. Uh, this was in the heat of anti-Facebook sentiment. Sheryl Sandberg was catching all this shit for the definers and, you know, the Soros stuff. And, and it was just a, a moment where the world sort of 
completely recognized the, the complicity of this company had. And you sort of thought, oh, this is like an, an existential threat. And I remember uh, how unbelievably heated that conversation was. And at this dinner that I went to, uh, asking about the, the corporate parent company, and I realized at the end of it, or when I left, oh, their plan is just that people over time will collectively forget and lose their cool and come back down to earth. And that's exactly what happened uh, six years later. I've, I've heard this point elsewhere, so I don't mean to be derivative, but uh, Facebook has, or Meta, excuse me, has, has exhausted the, the grief and anger over whatever role uh, they played in the election. And I think now that it's not a big deal that they're letting Trump back on. Obviously, it seems like he has a, a, a commercial existential threat of his own, which is to you know, if he rejoins Twitter or Facebook, he has to sort of self-abnegate and, and destroy Truth Social. And it seems like he's he's holding out uh, against hope for some notion that that could continue. But the Trump environment has changed. I mean, I, I'm not saying this analytically. It just seems like even after the January 6th committee, the, the, the hatred for this guy on the left has been replaced by a fair amount of of shrugging. Maybe it's because he seems impotent. The media organizations are going to be covering him again. Uh, no one expects a sort of rating bonanza that occurred in, in 2016. And so Trump is kind of becoming a safe space in a way that uh, you couldn't have fathomed uh, only a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I've, I was ranting with Tara about this, you know, back in November when Trump announced, like it's self-evidently, while the D.C. press corps was clamoring to cover Trump's announcement and, you know, his reelect, like my gut and my interactions anecdotally with people were just like, people are fucking done with this guy. The midterm elections then validated that Mm -hmm. Google search interest validated that. I mean, I remember at the time, David Byler at the Washington Post, like shared some Google search trend data. And it was like more people were searching for Thanksgiving cocktails ideas (laughs) and the World (laughs) Cup than for Donald Trump. Now, that could be because he's got universal name ID. But to me, it just signaled like no one's interested. There's just no energy, no buzz. Nobody cares. That can change in a campaign season. I mean, there are tempos every two years. Like we start to pay attention. The media covers it more. And maybe a primary fight will refocus attention on Donald Trump. But ah, I don't know. There just feels like there's something in the zeitgeist where people are ready to move on. And you see that. Among Republicans, too, like different polls are showing different things. But like DeSantis is up nationally in some polls among Republicans. He's up in New Hampshire or Iowa in some polls. Then Trump is up in some others. But this is a stupid old adage of politics. But, you know, politics is about the future. (laughs) Joe Biden seems to be the exception about that in 2020. Mm -hmm. But those were drastic times. But it does feel like maybe the press, the public is willing, is ready to to kind of move on. Um, But I don't know. I don't necessarily know, like, how this plays into Trump's, like, embrace or not embrace of these platforms yet though like what's he why why doesn't he want to go right back on instagram or twitter yeah it's enough to make you wonder if the the trump inner circle which is now you know very very small and new these are not family members these are not people with significant white house experiences it's people like Susie wiles you almost wonder if they have a bit of what jeb had or what at some point, you know, early in the campaign in 2020, the, the Biden folks had, which is they were afraid to put him out there because they were afraid that even in a digital universe, no one would show up. Hmm. You know, I do think that the, the main reason Trump has not returned to these platforms is is commercial. It's his own commercial interest. But the, the second uh, reason is that what, what if he starts screaming on Twitter and you see that 
the mentions, the retweets, the replies, they're just not as significant as they used to be. And how could <laughs> yeah. they be, right? Oh, so, so, so many bots are, are gone. There, there's less interest collectively in Twitter. It seems that the, the novelty that he brought is certainly old. And it doesn't seem like he has the energy that he had, like, quite plainly. I mean, again, I'm not trying yeah. to, like, overly humanize the guy. But I do think that because he seems like less of a uh, political threat, there has been a reorientation towards him from the media as, you know, this like this sort of uh, more, more of a long shot type candidate. I mean, Tara reported just the other day, even, you know, Brian Kemp is, is looking in the mirror and thinking, hey, that's a future president. <laughs> you know, when, when, oh, when that happens, oh, you know, that is fantastic and, right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm not totally sold on the dis- no, it's it, it, you, you nailed it. I'm not sold yet on the DeSantis thing either. I actually think this could still go a, a number of different ways. But the debate stage is going to be huge. Everyone is discernibly younger than Trump. Ted Cruz, a familiar punching bag, is probably not going to be a part of it this time. It just seems like he's the odd man out. And there may be some... I'm speculating here. But like I do think that there is some... Not quite image rehab, but that there is some image management that's going on here where where he does not want to be vulnerable and uh, run the risk of humiliating himself. And and I think that these social platforms actually do that. And to our initial point about Clegg, I think that Trump is now absolutely uh, – he's been defactored as a threat to these platforms, in part because they have so many other threats. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is like now Twitter's, you know, problem number 743, you know, <laughs> B. Um, but for, for Facebook, too, it seems like it's it's a low-grade challenge. All right, John, speaking of Trump in 2024, when we come back, I want to ask you about some new details about how the press is beginning to cover Trump's re-election campaign. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everyone. John, I want to ask you about something else Trump-related, and Dylan reported this in in the room uh, on Friday. He wrote this. I'm told that when former President Donald Trump embarks on a campaign tour through New Hampshire and South Carolina this Saturday, remember, this is Peter parentheses, 
Donald Trump is supposed to be campaigning for president. He announced his campaign. We haven't seen him campaign, but I guess he's doing it now. Anyway, back to Dylan. He'll be bringing with him on the plane a number of journalists from the nation's top outlets, including Kristen Holmes of CNN and Mark Caputo, Florida man, of NBC News, as well as reporters from print and digital outlets like The Wall Street Journal and Politico. The presence of journalists on Trump Force One portends a possible return to the old status quo circa 2015 and a decision by most mainstream news organizations to cover Trump as a conventional candidate and pay the high-cost travel fees regardless of the January 6th committee's finding that he engaged in a conspiracy to overturn the election. Anyway, that was the blurb. Um, it jumped out at you, and I'm curious why you're paying attention to this. Well, actually, um, one small clarification. I think Caputo might have just gotten reassigned uh, in the last day or so. But regardless, I'm sure Trump loves and will happily take the fees from these organizations to to house uh, their crew on the plane. But yes, it, it, there's a normalizing that's taking place here. And there's no question about it. And, and maybe it's warranted. I think you have to cover a president, right? I, th- I think that that's, that's table stakes and, and fair game here. Mm-hmm. But it does create a bit of deja vu for all the insane wrist slapping that went on in 2016 for how Trump was covered. He was covered in real time by people who had never seen anything like this before, you know, and all the people of the sort of, you know, John Harris vintage who would say like, oh, uh, you know, there have been carnival barkers like him before. Like, you know, they ended up looking like they kind of misjudged the level of insanity that we were seeing. So we're beginning again by meeting in the in the middle here. But I, I also think that having this many people on a plane up close uh, in, in this very gossipy industry that we're in will know pretty quickly whether he has um, not just his fastball, which I think he certainly it's pretty mm-hmm. clear he doesn't have it any longer, but whether he still has that X factor at all. And and more importantly, I think we'll know if he even really wants it, you know, or, or if this time around he's really doing that Leibovichian thing where he's just running to get his Q score up so that he can <laughs> sign more deals and stay out of legal trouble and, and um, grease his wallet uh, one final time. Yeah, I mean, I think you just sort of made an argument for why reporters should be on the plane. And look, this goes back to the boys on the bus. Like Tim Krause was writing about how, you know, he overheard some reporter who, or he talked to some reporter who's covering um, Nixon or McGovern and like, they wanted to hit the snooze alarm in the morning and not get up at the fucking days in and Neptune, Florida or whatever, uh, hit the snooze <laughs> again. And then they were like, Ugh, I have to get up because like the main purpose of being out there, you know, yes, it was to sort of like cover what the candidate said every day and send that back to HQ. But the main reason is like just body watch. Like what if the guy gets yep. shot? What if he falls down some stairs? What if he dies? And like Trump is old. <laughs> Trump is a threat to many people. Trump is probably like, you know, there's probably people out there that want to kill Trump. Mm-hmm, and so like, mm-hmm. I do think you have to sort of cover them if they're candidates. And I do think you have to do exactly what you said is like, you know, someone like Caputo who's been around the block can see if like, does this guy still have his fastball? Like, is this mm-hmm. guy just fucking around? Like, what's the energy on the ground in New Hampshire and South Carolina for him? I guarantee you these reporters, when they drop in, are going to be asking people in the crowd about Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and whatever. So I do think we'll get some, like, good color and texture out of this. I think the main question is also what you what you got at, which is news organizations are spending a lot of money to send reporters out on charter planes. Um, I reported in the Harvard paper I wrote about, you know, the 2012 campaign that, like, you know, by the time you got to the general election, a single flight leg covering 
uh, Mitt Romney was cost on a charter jet for a news organization was costing like $6,000 per flight, Yeah, you know, and that could be like a five leg day for a single reporter. So like this stuff is expensive. The question is, are you asking him hard questions? Are you seeing through the bullshit and the flattery? The stuff that was so embarrassing in 2016 was you'd get on the chopper with Trump and fly around the Iowa State Fairgrounds and like Halpern and Heileman were like riding around on a Zamboni with him and like Martha Raddatz took a selfie with him on the chopper and like the report, mm-hmm. a lot of reporters just like kind of embarrassed themselves during the primary campaign in 15 and then 16 and then got hard on him like in the general. Right. And so like hopefully this new generation of reporters covering him was just like treat him with the kind of skepticism that's merited and also the reality check that you're a liar. <laughs> uh, you you are a liar. And that just kind of like didn't really happen in that 2015 moment when the press was like going on the plane with him and fluffing him the whole time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let me, uh, I want to put a pin in that for a second. You, you're the expert on this topic. I am not. But I was trying to think as you were talking of the last time that there's been such little enthusiasm before a general election. And, and, and maybe um, Romney is the closest in our sort of sentient lifetime for, for that in, in recent years. But you know, when I f- read about these developments, when we report on them, I'm just constantly flabbergasted by how little enthusiasm, widespread speculation, concern, excitement, etc. that there is, you know, certainly in 2020, we were, we were all in our homes, but you know, it was a fantastically consequential election. 2016 was a, a life moment for all of us. And, uh, you know, I think the, the Obama elections were also like historic moments. Yeah. It, this just seems like it's there's so little helium in the balloon, and it's just. I don't, I, am I making that up? Is this just no, like I a just think cynical I, New York? It's not a cynical New York take. In fact, I feel like that would be a earnest take from Ohio, and the, and I say that because I think there's this increasing distance between the political press, the Acela Corridor press, and normies out there who are watching mainstream press less and less, but also like fundamentally like have kind of different interests, and I think that. The midterms showed people will will vote with or without Trump on the ballot because Trump is sort of the atmosphere that our politics uh, sort of operates in at the moment. But right. after Biden won, I've seen this at least in polling among Gen Z and millennials. The tune out has been remarkable, remarkable for people's mental health. People are sick of politics like people just don't want to fucking talk about politics. You know, the, the hardcore bases of both parties do. The press does. But I just, I don't know, man. It's just, I'm just theorizing here. I probably, I don't have a bunch of data in front of me, but I do think people will start to pay attention a little bit uh, once we get to 2024. But here's the other thing I keep going back to it I, when I think about my career and my life in politics. I remember being in New Hope, Pennsylvania in January or February of 2004. I was visiting our family friend, Ricky Gaffney, who was a producer on Good Morning America for a long time, a longtime TV producer who just passed away, and we miss her very much. And mm-hmm. she always used to like host us on the way up to New York when we were going to New York. And I remember watching the Iowa caucuses, again, before social media, 2004, and like I barely knew how the Iowa caucuses worked, or I like didn't really know who was running. And like even then, I was like a high-information young person who was like loved politics. And I was like, had to kind of sit down at the internet and like read about who like Dick Gephardt was. And it's, I've just always thought about that moment because I went on to be a like super like political junkie, like hardwired, spend my life doing this. 
And even I barely knew like the details <laughs> of the Iowa caucuses then. Mm -hmm. Going into 2024, like, yeah, we might, if Trump's in it, like we'll tune in for debates and we'll tune in for pri like primaries, uh, and, and maybe there'll be some big tune-in in 2024, but I just I just don't feel like it's going to be the way it was in 2016 and, and uh, back in 2008, which was the, the greatest election of our lifetime before 2016. I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm sure. just spitballing here. I just I just think you're on to something. And, you know, even the ratings for debates in 2020 were, like, lower than they were in the previous right. cycle. And I think a lot of people, just to put a pin in it, have realized that, like, politics isn't, like, fun and entertainment. It can be part of the time, but yeah. it's like serious and heavy. And I think people would rather look up Thanksgiving cocktail recipes and fantasize about going out with Joe Burrow. And <laughs> that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I, my my fears are more so on the left than on the right. I, I think that maybe that's just because we're talking about the, the party in power versus the, the, the party trying to take over power. But I feel like part of the the tuning out that you're talking about it's due to like exogenous factors. Obviously, I think there was an overwhelming political current in this country that was, that was going to um, uh, short circuit at some point. But there's also <laughs> this Biden administration is pretty swampy. Uh, it's a lot of former lobbyists who are who are running the country, <laughs> and um, it's that's not it. <laughs> that filters through and becomes uh, a not entirely in, engaging message. And it's uh, yeah, 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 it's too inside. Yeah. And also, like, people voted for boring. I don't know. Maybe, like, someone has to come along. That's the thing. Like, there has to be a figure who is as compelling and slash triggering as Trump or Obama to compel people to, to care. Yeah. Wesley Moore, 2028. I have utter certainty that he is that figure in, in six years. That's the vibe. Uh, J, J. Mart, Jonathan Martin, our friend, wrote a piece about this. And also Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. And, dude, John Favreau and I were talking about this the other day, like people complain about the lack of a democratic bench. Like there's a lot of people out there like Warnock and Mark Kelly and mm -hmm. Gretchen Whitmer. Like it's hard for some of those people to turn around and immediately run for president. But you know, if Biden's certainly running, then they've got a little bit of a pad to turn around and run the next time if they want. So the bench, which was gone for a while, feels like it's aging up um, and we'll see. All right, John, uh, thanks so much. I am excited to see the TV ratings, website traffic, and Donald Trump himself prove us all completely wrong in everything we just said. <laughs> Have a good week, man. <laughs> Take it easy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Hold up. 